The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Haggai. As you're doing that, I just want to, first of all, address... um, couple things that happened this week, uh, shootings in El Paso and also real close to home here in Dayton. Um, I, I see all the stuff online that you guys see, the banter back and forth. Uh, things like this get quickly politicized, and, and that's, this is not the place for that, and we're not going to go there. Uh, one thing I have seen that's been troubling is, is a trend of, of many people uh, kind of inferring that maybe uh, prayer is, is not a proper reaction. Like, we've done enough praying, now let's do something else. And I'm not saying there's no cause for something else. I'm not sure anybody really knows what that is. But what I do want to say is that prayer is the most important thing we can do in the face of things like this, because ultimately it is God's help that we need. Because God is the only one that reaches human hearts, and that's where the seat of all of these issues really is. Uh, it's sin in human hearts. So, uh, if I can just encourage us to stay in prayer about these things, pray for the people affected, but also pray uh, for those that would be deluded enough uh, to carry out things like this. So let's be people of prayer. Amen? That's all I'm saying. All right. Amen. So we're going to continue this week in our series. It's called God Over Everything, and we're taking four weeks to study through the book of Haggai. So what I want to do is give you a quick rundown of where we are in the biblical storyline. I know that I did this the first week. This one won't be as exhaustive. Just want to make sure we're all kind of at least in the ballpark in terms of where we're at. Uh, we have our bearings a little bit. So, uh, Haggai prophesied around 520 BC, uh, and he is commonly referred to often as a post exilic prophet. So, what does that mean? Well, that means he prophesied after the exile. All right, well, what does that mean? So, let me, let me get you up to the exile, right? So, God creates the heavens and the earth, God creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sin, they decide they know better than God. A few chapters later, that sin carries on to the point where the earth is just totally messed up and everybody's only wicked all the time. God floods the earth. Noah comes off the boat several generations later. God calls Abraham, gives him a son named Isaac. Isaac begets Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. One of those is Joseph. Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt, uh, gets put in a position where he ends up saving his family from famine. The people of God go into Egypt. They end up enslaved there 400 years. God calls them out through Moses in the Exodus. That's the Red Sea and all that situation. They end up in the wilderness. That's where the tabernacle is established. That's where the Ten Commandments are given on Mount Sinai. Uh, They're in the wilderness for 40 years. End up crossing into the Promised Land after that. Joshua and Caleb lead them there. Uh, There's the time of the judges and then the time of the kings. And then King Saul was Israel's first king. Then there was David. And then David's son, Solomon. Uh, What I just did there is not going to keep you from needing to read the Old Testament, just so you know. That was the four million mile view, okay? So get in there and dig around. I skipped a lot. So David's son's name was Solomon. Solomon's son's name was Rehoboam. And during that time uh, where Rehoboam reigned, uh, he made some poor leadership decisions and opened up the door for the kingdom to end up being split. So Jeroboam took several of the tribes north that became known as Israel. Uh, Rehoboam ruled Judah in the south. And so then what happened? As a result of idol worship over and over again, after being warned many times, the Assyrians, God sent them, and they conquered the northern kingdom. The Babylonians conquered the southern kingdom. Sometime later, the Persians then came and whooped the Babylonians. And then they decided they were going to let the exiles return 
around 538 BC. So when the, when the Babylonians and the Assyrians came in and they, they conquered the northern and southern kingdom, what they did is they took the people from the land and took them to either Assyria or Babylon. And when the Persians came, they released the exiles to go back to the promised land. So this is the time where we find ourselves as uh, Haggai is prophesying. So uh, what they did is they began rebuilding the temple around 536 B.C., they stopped shortly after because of various reasons. Some of those reasons were legitimate. Uh, some of them were simply sinful and selfish. Now, God spoke to the people through Haggai, and he challenged their excuses and their sinful priorities. And they had, the people, what sounded like potentially wise and even in some cases spiritual excuses for not finishing the temple. The primary one was that they said it wasn't time. It wasn't time to rebuild God's temple. And God's response to them through the prophet Haggai was pretty sassy. He said, uh, so it's not time for you guys to build my temple, but it's time for you to build and dwell in these nice paneled houses you have. Uh, that got their attention. Um, see, what God called them to was to reorient their priorities and to resume building the temple so that they could return them to the purpose for which they were created. That purpose was to be known and loved by God and to know, love, and worship him in return. And unlike many other prophets, whose words seemingly fell upon deaf ears, uh, the people, they responded pretty quickly to this rebuke from Haggai, and they begin to build the temple again. And so that catches you up all the way through chapter 1 of Haggai, and today we're going to read the first nine verses of chapter 2, wherein we will see the incredible patience and mercy of God as he speaks challenging words of encouragement to the quickly distracted and discouraged people as they've begun rebuilding the temple. So as I said, we're in Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read the first nine verses of that chapter. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also in the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Praise God for his word. Amen. And so when we come back and we look at the first three verses, what we see uh, is that some people were following, they, they were falling, not following, they were falling into despair because of the comparison trap. God asked them, who was here to see the temple originally? Does this new one you're building seem like nothing to you? And, and there is a foolish and sinful tendency towards comparison that every human heart is tempted by. We may not be aware of it, but that is true. Now, 
what, what is this deal? What is, what is he talking about? Well, the reality is there were some here that were part of this uh, group of exiles. They were old enough to have seen Solomon's temple. Okay, so this is their re- Solomon's temple was destroyed when the Babylonians came in and conquered. So what they're rebuilding uh, is, is the next temple, and the, the foundation has been set. And uh, what he's saying is some of, some of you saw Solomon's temple. And the problem is that when Solomon built the temple, he spared nothing in terms of expense when it came to resources, when it came to having the most skilled tradesmen possible to put that thing together. This temple was a wonder of the world. There were people that traveled from all over just to see it. It was beautiful. It was glorious. And so the problem is that even from the footprint, as they set the foundation of this temple, the rebuild, uh, there were those that were discouraged by that. And our enemy uses this type of comparison often to cause division and disunity between generations. If you go to Ezra uh, chapter 3, I'm not asking you to turn there, but if you want to check it out later, there's an account of how different people responded to the laying of the temple foundation. Uh, You had those that were there that had seen Solomon's temple, and when they laid this new foundation, this was the older generation, they, they literally were wailing they were, they were crying out in despair at what this temple looked like compared to Solomon's. At the very same time, you had the younger generation that had not seen Solomon's temple who were cheering loudly. They were, they were exuberant and joyful. And Ezra, uh, in the book of Ezra, it says you could, they couldn't even tell what was happening. It was just a loud clamoring because you had some wailing and you had some cheering. And uh, this, this kind of division, this kind of differing perspective, uh, it can often have an effect on churches that is not uh, something that we would want to see, something that God wants to see. Um, It happens in various ways. Typically, we're not laying foundations for buildings, and that's what squabbles come about, but oftentimes it's seating and clothes and music and liturgy. There's all kinds of things that people... uh, can, you know, the older generation can look to the past, things that, the way things were done at another time, and they can, they can scorn the way things are happening now. And what we have to remember is God had commanded these people to build this temple with the resources they had, with the people they had. And so, yes, they didn't have the resources Solomon had. They didn't have the people, the skill that the, the, those that built Solomon's temple had, and yet God had still called them to this work. And so it looked different. Uh, and as we see towards the end of the verses we read today, God had an intention in all that. He's shifting the focus away from the grandeur of the building, uh, more to a focus on what he's going to do when he fills it with his glorious presence. Um, but we need to be aware that the enemy really likes to have people divided over their perception of what God's doing in a given time and whether or not it's the way they would prefer it to be. Um, we, I, I want to be clear about this. There... <laughs> The people that would have been upset about the footprint of the new temple, they would have, prop- they would have had, to, based on the timeline, we know they would have had to have been up in their 70s. If they were here at the new temple, in order to have seen Solomon's temple, they would, they would be up in their 70s. But let me just say this, you don't have to be in your 70s uh, to be stuck in your ways or to have a real solid opinion about the way things should be done and a lack of openness about maybe something different that God is doing now. We also need to be careful to say that on the flip side, there are often godly traditions and wisdom that is ignored by younger people and younger generations in the name of always trying to be on the cutting edge of what's hip or new. 
And, and this, we see this problem, uh, that this is part of how we even got to this part of the redemptive arc of biblical history, because we, we wouldn't have had the split of the kingdoms and maybe not the exiles had Rehoboam, earlier on, uh, been willing to listen to the older advisors, right? He had some people that were around for when his dad Solomon reigned, and they were advising him to, you know, deal with the people in a certain way, to be kind of chill out a little bit, not try to put so much of a burden on them and, and not, not try to walk in an authority that you haven't yet earned. Uh, and that, that was what the, the older advisor said. And then he had some young advisors that said, hey man, you're the king, do what you want. These people just have to do what you say. And that didn't go real well for him. The kingdom split and, uh, you know, chaos ensued. So uh, we, we need to understand that this, this can happen from, from both ways. A disregard for the generations either ahead of us or behind us, uh, and, and a division that can come by not being careful about that. Uh, and, and unfortunately, the way that this is often resolved today is by keeping churches segregated by age. Sometimes that just happens almost in this sad, natural way where uh, churches just get to the point where everybody's one age and it doesn't feel welcome to anybody of a different age, and so that happens. Sometimes churches will even intentionally, because they just can't get the older generation and the younger generation to humbly see that, hey, there's value in, in both um, in terms of what we maybe prefer, but also the way we go about ministry. So they'll, they'll just split them up and put them in different services. Uh, and this might seem easier, right, than fighting the battle of trying to get the older generation to love and appreciate the younger generation and see that God may be doing something in a different way with them. Or also getting the younger generation to love and appreciate the older generation and understand that sometimes walking those old paths is the right way and you don't know everything you think you know. Amen from the young people there. Can I get one? You know sometimes you're a fool, you young folks, right? Sometimes you need to listen to someone older than you. Yes? Amen. Okay, good. I know that. I'm the fool of fools. So uh, what we don't want to do that, we don't want to just end up segregating by age because that's easier. Because what that's doing is it's pandering to our natural herd mentality and a sinful desire to only be around those who we think are like us. Uh, we tend to congregate with people that have you know, affinity for the same things, same likes, um, same in all kinds of ways, and, and that makes us weaker, not stronger. In fact, uh, we have prayed and worked from the beginning of Love City to be a church that values people at every age and, and at every stage of life. And that's different. I don't just mean age. I mean from being somebody that uh, you know, is called to never be married or is not yet married or is married uh, without kids or is married with kids or their kids have all grown up. I'm, talk I'm not talking about just age. I'm talking about stage of life. There's value and, and the body of Christ is made stronger by having all those people working together, pulling together for the furthering of the mission of God's gospel going forth to the world. And so how have we done that? Well, we've put that vision forth from the pulpit. We try to reflect this principle in our liturgy, in the songs we sing, in our community groups. Um, but the, the truth is, it's only when we believe and walk this principle out at the, at the family and individual level that we can really experience the beauty and the blessing of being multi-generational. When I say that we try to work this out in our liturgy and in the songs we sing, you know, you'll notice here that sometimes we'll sing a song that's two years old, sometimes we'll sing a song that's 200 years old, because we know there's value in, in all of those, right? That God's been working in different ways through different times in different people, uh, and, and that all of that, as long as the lyrics are 
centered upon Christ and his glorious work, and, and they're pointing our affection towards God and not towards us, we're here for it, right? When, when we talk about uh, community groups, how we do that, some of you have probably wondered why we don't have uh, a baking group and a biking group and a um, singles group and this, that, and the other group. Well, I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong, and some churches use that strategy, and glory, hallelujah, but what we have are community groups, and what we're hoping to do is get you to push past all the things that you like and are comfortable with and understand if you'll go sit and eat with somebody that's different than you, maybe they're a different age than you, maybe they don't have kids and you do, maybe you don't have kids and they do, maybe they're from a totally different background than you, but if you'll sit across from them and eat with them, and then you'll break your Bible out and study the scriptures with them, and then you'll pray with with them and you'll hear how they're struggling and you'll share with them how you're struggling, you'll actually find that you'll be made better because of those varying perspectives. That we're stronger as a church when we're willing to push past what we just like or feel comfortable with. You know God will do stuff to make you uncomfortable sometimes because he loves you, right? You down with that? Okay, good. Amen. So what that leads me to is some questions for you. Do you hang out with people different than you? And let me just say this, I know that can be a challenge. It's a challenge because that is literally cutting across the grain of what naturally tends to happen just in societal structures, but also in our own preference. So because it can be a challenge, maybe you're saying, you know what, I don't think I do that. I'm not intentional about that. Well, the next question is, will you pray for opportunities to do that? Will you pray for that because you, you are convinced and you believe that Diversity in our relationships, it, make us, it makes us stronger and it makes us better as a people. The inverse or the, the opposite of that is, are you not willing to buy any of that? Do you really believe the lie that it's better for you to segregate yourself into relational silos with people who are of the same age or the same race or the same socioeconomic status or the same stage in life? Do you really believe God's mission is going to be accomplished better if we all just divide by our personal preferences and comfort levels and just stay there and don't, don't blur the lines. That doesn't sound right to me. I hope there will be a people that will pray for opportunities to hang out with people, to get to know people, to link arms and be on mission with people that are different than us in all kinds of ways. I believe this is to the glory of God. I believe it reflects the vision we see in Revelation of one day we're going to stand before the throne with people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. And uh, if you're uncomfortable with being around people different than you, heaven's going to be a real bummer for you. Amen. This comparison trap, it, it doesn't just limit our effectiveness on gospel mission within a, a church family. It also stops cooperation between different congregations and denominations. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but um, much of Christian culture, I, I think this is true globally. I know that it's true in this country. Uh, churches and church leaders are constantly tempted to measure their effectiveness by metrics that push them towards compromise. Um, and what I mean by that is typically somebody looks at a church in America and they're going to gauge whether or not they are fruitful or faithful by how many people go there. Uh, oftentimes by how many dollars come in to the offerings. And um, I actually have a lot of fun with this because when I encounter other ministers and pastors and whatever, uh, they oftentimes will ask a question like, oh, well, how are things going at Love City? And I always say something like, oh, man, it's awesome. There's so many reasons I'm grateful. I mean, I'll tell them a story about somebody that I can just see them growing as a disciple. I'll tell a story about somebody that is 
is going out into their sphere of influence and sharing the gospel and, and teaching people how to follow Jesus or how a family is standing firm in faith through the midst of great adversity. Or I'll, I'll do something like that, and I like watching them squirm because that's not what they were asking me. When they asked, well, how's Love City doing, what they meant is, how many people you got showing up on Sunday? That's what they really meant. So I make them ask. I make them ask the question they're really asking. It's fun for me. <laughs> oh, oh, well, that's good. That's, that's good. Well, so, so how many people are on a Sunday? And I'll tell them. You know, I'm not, listen, by God's grace, I, I honestly don't care if 2,000 of you show up or, or two of you show up on a Sunday. Um, I'm just going to do what God's called me to do. I'm going to stand up here and teach the Bible the same exact way. I'm going to call people to repentance. I'm going to call people to stand firm in faith in Christ. I'm going to call people to live this gospel, uh, not just nod their head about it. And um, ultimately, this thing's about faithfulness. That's what I'm measuring. That's, that's how I can tell if... God is pleased with, with Love City Church. Are people growing in their faith? Is the depth of the reality of them being a disciple, is that growing? Are they growing in holiness? Are they growing in obedience? Are we doers of the word, not hearers only? Th those are the metrics I'm looking at. Um, and if those things are happening, then I believe we will be going out into our spheres of influence. We will be going out and affecting the places and the people where we are. We will be the light of the world. And thus, because of that, people will, we will have opportunities to share the gospel. We will have opportunities then to lead people to meet this beautiful Jesus that we've met and that we love. And uh, then if they need a place to learn how to be a disciple and to fellowship, well, hallelujah, bring them. That's how we're going at it. Uh, the reality that many are tempted to measure effectiveness by those other metrics, though, it's, it's sadly, it's caused many to abandon the mission of preaching the gospel and making disciples, and instead ending up in a competition, pandering to the consumeristic tendencies that we're all baptized in from birth, trying to lure more people and resources. I don't know if you know this about yourself, but if you were born on this earth, <laughs> which I assume most of you were, I don't think we're doing uh, burbs on the moon yet, so if you were born here, there is, there is a spirit of this age, man. I don't care what country you're in, the message from birth is you're, you're being marketed to somehow. Somehow somebody's telling you, hey, you're worth it, and you need to go get it, and here's a product that's going to make you feel better about yourself. Uh, consumerism is, it, it is, <laughs> it's the water that, that we're baptized into from birth, and, and it's, it runs absolutely counter to the gospel because Jesus didn't say, uh, come and find a comfortable spot among my followers. He said, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to pick up your cross daily. It's going to cost you daily to follow me. You're going to have to lay yourself down daily. If you're going to walk in love, you're going to be sacrificing for the good of others over and above yourself daily. Consumerism and the love of God, can't, they can't coexist. One's got to die. The only question is, which one is it going to be? Uh, A.W. Tozer, he recognized this, this poisonous and pitiful trend for us to be tempted this way, and he wrote this prayer in response. It says, Dear Lord, I refuse henceforth. Uh, he was back a few hundred years, so, you know, there's going to be some sweet language in here, so just enjoy it. He says, I refuse henceforth to compete with any of thy servants. They have congregations larger than mine, so be it. I rejoice in their success. They have greater gifts very well. That is not in their power nor in mine. I'm humbly grateful for their greater gifts and my smaller ones. I only pray that I may use to thy glory such modest gifts as I possess. 
I will not compare myself with any, nor try to build up my self-esteem by noting where I may excel one or another in thy holy work. I herewith make a blanket disavowal of all intrinsic worth. I am but an unprofitable servant. I gladly go to the foot of the cross and own myself the least of thy people. If I err in my self-judgment and actually underestimate myself, I do not want to know it. I purpose to pray for others and to rejoice in their prosperity as if it were my own. And indeed, it is mine own if it is thine own. For what is thine is mine. And while one plants and another waters, it is thou alone that giveth the increase. Woo, that's a good prayer. A.W. Tozer, you can find that on your Google machine later if you want to print that out. Put it on your fridge. Be a good one. Amen. This comparison trap that these people in Haggai's day fell into, it does not only ensnare us at the corporate level, and what I mean by that is it doesn't just ensnare us in terms of groups of people getting caught in it. It is also one of the primary ways that the forces of darkness in the world attack and neutralize our kingdom fruitfulness individually. There's a lot, I mean a lot, of psychological literature today that points out the dangers of constant or what is sometimes termed hyper-comparison. Careers, parenting, marriages, relational status, physical appearance, the list goes on and on of ways we compare ourselves to others in unhealthy ways. Uh, One recent Psychology Today article called Social Media a Turbo Booster, amplifying our ability to be hyper-comparative. Now, of course, this is further exacerbated by the careful curation of the online image that many people put out there. You know what I mean when I say that? Most people are posting the highlights, okay? Not all, but most. And here's the real bummer about that. Many if not most of us, are aware of both the sinful tendency to compare and the unrealistic images that we're comparing to, and yet we still get caught in the trap. Now, according to much of what I've read, the scientific community believes that this comparison is rooted in some kind of biological survival mechanisms, and so trying to stop comparing altogether is like trying to stop breathing. It's just part of who we are. Um, But I don't believe that humanity being hardwired for comparison is the result of evolution or natural selection. But I do think that God has built in us the ability to judge ourselves against the standard. Now, what determines if comparison is an unhealthy process that leads to pain and destruction or a helpful process that leads to holiness and growth has everything to do with what standard we are comparing to. Let me read you again, verses 4 through 9. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with all the wealth 
of all nations. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Now God, in the first few verses, he calls out their discouragement because they were comparing the work they were doing for him with what had been done by others in the past. And the question for us today is, well, what is God's answer to them? So he calls out why they're discouraged, this unfruitful comparison, but what is his answer? What does he say? Well, in a nutshell, he says, quit looking at what other people have done and fix your eyes on me. Are you sure that's what he said? Well, I know I just read it, but let's do it again. Verse 4 and 5. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work. Why? For I am with you. As for the promises which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. So what is God saying? He's saying, I'm with you. He's saying, you're my people. And that changes everything about how we look at this stuff. You're my people, and I'm with you. And so what is God saying to them? He's saying to them, you're my people. And that means the standard the world uses to measure what is successful or worthwhile means nothing. Right? This is the same problem that the people of Israel had back when they realized all the nations around them had a king, an earthly king, and they didn't. Would they come to God and start crying about well, everyone else has a king. Why can't we have a king? And God said, well, you, you do have a king. You're different than them. You're my people. I'm your king. I'm an eternal king. I'm a king that's going to love you and be good to you and merciful to you and provide for you. If I give you an earthly king like all the rest of these, they're going to abuse you. It's going to go bad. They're going to lead you astray. We don't really care. We want to be like everybody else. What were they doing? Where were their eyes? Everywhere else but set upon God that would have really brought them an answer that would have led them to a path of much less pain and hurt. God's telling them, you're my people. And so the standards everyone else in the world is using to measure what success is, what's worthwhile, those mean nothing. So stop measuring what you're doing by those standards. I'm sure the temple... The temple of uh, Aphrodite somewhere, or the temple of Artemis somewhere, or the, 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 the Asherah poles here and there, maybe they were more grand in their architecture. Maybe the footprint of those temples was bigger, and they were looking around and thinking, how are we going to put this dinky little thing up for the one true God of Israel? And he's saying, hold on, guys, hold on. Don't look at that. Don't look at what they built. Don't look at what they were doing. Don't even look back at what happened in Solomon's time. Look to me. I'm with you. I'm doing something with you right now. It's a new thing. It's a different thing. I've called you to build this temple. And so just obey me and see what I'll do. God is saying to them as well, you are my people. And that means that your personal assessment of your capability means nothing. You see, because here they were, they were downcast. They were discouraged about how this small little temple looked compared to the temple of Solomon's day, and they're looking at their own ability. They know that the craftsmen that built Solomon's temple, they were brought in from all around the world. The best stonemasons, the best wood craftsmen, the best metalsmiths that money could buy. And they're looking at themselves. They're a ragtag band of exiles. They can stack some rocks one on top of the other, but they're not looking at this thing going 
real well. But God's saying to him, I'm with you. You're my people. And so your assessment of your ability to do what I'm calling you to do, that's not even a factor. That's not what I'm asking you to focus on. How is it that you're standing in pride deciding that you know better what you can do than I do? And see, this will help us to think this way, to understand this, whether or not we, we truly see ourselves as having an issue with comparison. That's the first thing that my prayer by the power of the Holy Spirit is tonight, that our hearts are being worked upon and our minds are being convinced of the reality that every one of us struggles with this tendency. But it looks different for different people, right? Because when some people struggle with the temptation to sinfully compare, they end up very downcast and downtrodden. That was with the older generation. That was their struggle looking at this temple. They're looking at, here's what we are putting together versus what was here. It's, it's not looking good. What we're doing is dinky. It's not important. It's not good enough. And many people, they, they have the same kind of self-talk. Sometimes it's because other people have said that to them. Sometimes it's the way they were raised, but for many people, that inner monologue is, I'm not good enough, I can't do this. Their, their, their understanding of themselves is that they are incapable, and they're not in any way willing or able to factor in that, but God is saying, he's going to help you. He's going to add to you what is necessary to make you capable. What he needs is not for you to be a superstar, he needs for you to be obedient. And so this understanding that, uh, that God's saying, you're my people, and so your assessment of your capability, that's, that's not the issue. That, that's not even really on the table. That helps somebody that is, that is downcast in their understanding or that under-assumes what can happen if they will be obedient to God, but it also can help the person who on the other end of the spectrum has come to believe that they have absolutely everything necessary, that they think they are you know, the best thing since sliced bread, you know, or pick your analogy, uh, they, they feel like they've got it under control. They actually believe they don't need God to accomplish whatever it is they put their mind to. They've bought into this trope that says, uh, I, I have the inner strength, I've got everything I need. If I just pull up myself by my bootstraps and, and you know, gaze hard enough for the inner light within, then I can, I can do it. I'm a winner and people like me. Right? Whatever I put my mind to, I can do it. Sometimes they'll even quote Philippians 4.13 out of context. Well, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what they think that, they forget it's through Christ who strengthens me, man. That doesn't mean you can just go out and do whatever you put your beautiful little mind to. It means that if you're humble enough to understand that anything we're going to try to do, anything we're going to try to accomplish in this life, it's going to have any eternal weight or purpose if we're going to obey God and do what it is he's called us to do, we're going to need his strength to do it. We're going to need his help to do it. And so our personal assessment, whether it's too high or it's too low, is really of no consequence if our eyes are set upon God who has called us to this great work. God is also saying in this, you're my people. And that means your belief that you lack the resources to accomplish my mission means nothing. It's not just about our understanding of, of our own personal strength and effort and gifts and talents that we bring to the thing. Sometimes we look at what God's called us to do, and, and we're looking around for the resources to do it, and it's like, uh, but what does God say? And this is part of their issue. This was part of their concern, you understand. They didn't have all the resources Solomon had. 
Well, how does God answer that? Verse 7, he says, I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of all nations and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. And so part of what he's showing them, part of what he's tilting his hand to, the glimpse he's giving them is, is of this truth. God can bring resources to bear in a situation from places you would have never seen coming. And he often does, if we'll trust him. God is able, you know, he's talking about, I'm going to shake, they were looking, they're, they're called to build the temple. So they're looking at what they have at their disposal right now. Okay, how many stones we got? How much mortar we got? How many tools we got? What, what's it going to take in terms of effort to bring enough timber down to put this thing together? We, we may have a little bit of gold and silver to do the, you know, the ornamental things, but it, not enough. And what's God's word to them? <laughs> Man, I got resources you can't even imagine. I can bring things into this situation from places you would have not even known to look. Hallelujah. We know this principle is true. It's echoed in the New Testament, right? In the book of Ephesians, we're told that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly far above more than we could ever ask or think. One translation says immeasurably more than we can imagine. That, that should be a piece of humble pie that we just chew on and say, mmm, immeasurably more than you can imagine. How's your imagination? What can you imagine God doing? Think about the difficult situations you're in right now. How far can you stretch your imagination? Think about the person you know that's struggling in their faith, that you've been praying for. Think about all the stuff that just troubles your heart in this life right now. What can you imagine that God could do? Now, I assume you can imagine some really great things. Now, the distance between whatever amazing thing you can imagine God doing in terms of bringing resources to a situation, saving somebody that's lost, doing a great work in a, in a, in a time and place where people are broken and hurting, whatever you can imagine. Now, the distance between, what, however far your imagination can stretch, the distance between that and what God can do is immeasurable. That means we can't get a tape measure, we can't get a yardstick long enough to measure the distance between what God can do and what you can imagine. How you feeling? Hopefully humbled. Hopefully thankful. <laughs> Hopefully encouraged. That's what God's doing here. That's what he's telling his people. I know you don't see it. Of course you don't. You're not me. But I do. In verse 8, he goes on. He says, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. It's the same idea. He's saying, listen, I know what you got. I know you're looking at what you got and you're looking at what I've called you to do and the math doesn't add up. But, but what, you, what you're not factoring into the equation is who asked you, who called you. And what I have, the silver's mine, the gold is mine. It all belongs to me. And if I've called you to something, I'm going to provide everything you need to do it. And so many times, if not most of the time, God called us, calls us to do something. It's going to require us stepping in faith without having seen yet everything lined up and everything in a row and everything secure and comfortable and, and well, we can just make the move. I mean, <laughs> in the Exodus, man, when they're, when they're coming up to the Red Sea, when you go read that carefully, when God... God says, so Moses, you know, everyone starts like, hey, the Egyptians are coming, and, and you know, they're starting to yell at Moses like, hey, man, 
why'd you bring us out here? Because it looks like we're about to get cut down on the banks of the Red Sea. So that was fun. You know, this little trip we just took, great, right? And so Moses starts calling out to God, and what is God's answer? You have these people start walking towards that water, and I'm going to split it. Not I'm going to split it, and then they can walk. God, in his great mercy towards us, continually teaches us this lesson over and over again. You've got to quit walking in your own understanding. You've got to quit just doing stuff based on what you see and what you think you know and what you've got in your hands, because that's not all you're working with. I'm in the mix, and that changes everything. I hope you're glad about that, because there's a bunch of stuff in my life, there's a bunch of things I know God's called us to do that I don't see with my sweet, precious little blue eyes exactly how it's going to work. There's all kinds of stuff that I know if God doesn't show up, if God doesn't pull from his resources and add something to this, we're sunk. And yet, the question is, has he shown us enough to go ahead and step forward in faith? Has he shown us enough to trust that when we obey him, he'll meet us there? I think he has. I hope you believe that too. The last thing I see here is that God is telling them that you're my people and I've brought you together for my purposes and I've bound you together under my covenant. So comparison with one another is foolish. Let me read you this. God actually makes fun of us through the Apostle Paul as he's writing to the Corinthian church. He says this, For the body is not one member but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, it's not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. That should help us, friends, because we get caught in this comparison trap. We're looking over here. We're looking over there. We, we, that person's assignment from God we think would be a lot more fun than what we think our assignment is, or we see somebody that we think has the same assignment as us, and yet they're, it looks like they're doing a whole lot better at it, or God's graced them more for it. But I think Tozer was right when he said, God, I'm going to rejoice in the little bit of gifts you've given me, and I'm going to rejoice in the bunch of gifts you gave others, and I'm just going to play my part and be thankful I get to be a part of the body. I mean, so, do you un, are you willing to admit that sometimes we act like children? Do you understand that these scriptures in Corinthians where Paul's saying, well, if the ear says, I don't want to be a part of the body because I'm not an eye, he's actually making fun of us because we're that silly, we're that goofy. My son got consequences twice today for telling his sister, if you don't play this game the way I want to play it, well, I'm not going to play anymore. And we're going to snatch him up bald head every single time he says that because we're not going to let him live like that. That's foolishness, man. You don't get to just manipulate and be a baby about stuff and think, well, if it's not my way and the way I think it should be, and if I'm not perfectly happy with exactly how this thing lays out, well, then I'm just, I'm out. <laughs> no, you're not. Get over here. <laughs> Knock it off. I'm going to do something to you. You know what I mean? And God's poking fun at this tendency in us. And it's good. We need to laugh at ourselves. But we also need to get serious about not letting ourselves fall into this foolishness. God's brought us together for a mission, and he's brought different pieces into this body, different parts with different functions, different callings, all of us. He's brought us together, not for us to look with 
envy at one another, but to be so super grateful that there's, if you're a nose, that God brought eyes, man. Because this thing would be a lot harder if all we can do is smell and we can't see. Praise God. He knows what he's doing. And I don't know. I haven't had a dream or a vision where God told me, you know, what part of the body I am. I don't care, man, if I'm the pinky toenail. I'm, I'm in it. <laughs> I get to be a part of what he's doing. This glorious and eternal work of drawing people out of darkness and bringing them to the light of the gospel. Of setting people free from sin and death and offering them eternal life. The greatest and most glorious rescue mission, the most important work that has ever been undertaken. We get to be a part of it. And not because we earned our spot, but because by grace and because of his great mercy, he's invited us in by faith. Hallelujah. I told you that was the last one, but I told a fib, but not on purpose. There's one more. The actual last thing I see inherent in this message from Haggai to the people as God's encouraging them is this. You are my people. And that means what I will do with you will always exceed what you can comprehend. And we see this clearly in verse 9. He says, The latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. You see, they were looking at the footprint of the foundation. They were used to the way that everybody thinks in the world, that everybody measures what is worthwhile. They were looking at how big is this building going to be? How ornate is it going to be? How precious are the materials going to be that we use to put it together? How much quality is there going to be in the craftsmanship? And they were discouraged. And yet God is telling them, listen, the glory of this temple? See, what you're, what you're fixated on, what you think what you think made the last temple so glorious was how beautiful and ornate it was and how it would take someone's breath away just to set their eyes upon it, just the physical structure of it. But ultimately, that, all that was supposed to do, all that beauty was supposed to do was to point to the greater glory and the greater beauty of the one whom that temple houses. The very God who dwelt there. And we see that, uh, we see that verse 9 is... It's fulfilled, and, and, and theologians uh, tend to argue about this, this fulfillment in verse 9, where he says that uh, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former. And so he's saying whatever glory there was in Solomon's temple, the glory that's coming is going to be greater. Yes, even in this dinky little thing that a bunch of you are crying about because you don't see how this could possibly measure up to what God has done in the past. He's saying the latter glory is going to be greater than the former. And here's what he's doing. We see this fulfilled, I, I believe, in two ways. That, you know, people argue about maybe it's one or the other. I, I, I think both are true. Okay, so the first way is, is in a practical way. Uh, the Herod, who came along in, in, like in the time of Christ's birth, had a real God complex about him. Uh, he really wanted everyone to think uh, he was worthy of worship. And so there was a point in time where Herod actually commissioned uh, work upon the temple and if you think about it, uh, Herod was, had, had the, the backing of uh, people in power behind him. And so his resources were maybe even greater than in the time of Solomon. And, and it's, it's understood that when Herod rebuilt the temple, what he did, the physical things that he did in rebuilding the temple, it was even more beautiful, more ornate, and more uh, just splendid to the eye than in the time of Solomon. Okay, And so in, in that way, this is fulfilled. Uh, but 
I think that's the lesser of the two ways. Because the other thing that we have to consider is what he says, in, in the very last thing, I will give peace. In this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. We see about uh, what <laughs> Herod, <laughs> Herod prettied the place up. Herod did a remodel. He chip and Joanna gained that thing, and it was great. It was probably shiplap everywhere. It was, everyone was stoked. But that was nothing in terms of glory, the way God sees it. It, was, it had nothing, it couldn't hold a candle to when the Prince of Peace himself walked into this temple and taught in its courts. The latter glory will be greater than the former. Christ, the very fulfillment, the very thing that the temple was foreshadowing. You see, God came and he, he did. He dwelt in that holy of holies, just like he said he would. But all he was doing that whole time is he was showing this ultimate redemptive intention that he had not to just be with his people by residing in a temple, but to send Christ to live a perfect life, die in our place for our sins, and then rise from the grave so that his Holy Spirit could then dwell in us. The whole thing was pointing forward to this greater glory. And when Jesus set foot in that temple, it, was never, it never had a moment of more glory than when the Prince of Peace himself stepped in. And the beauty is, friends, that when God sent Christ, he gave us the ultimate standard and the only standard with which to compare ourselves. You see, God has given us his glorious gospel which shows us that every one of us are broken and hopeless apart from grace. And this truth sets us free from the slavery of sinful comparison. We're free to compare ourselves with the perfection of Jesus, to wholeheartedly embrace that we will never measure up in our own strength, to see ourselves as but lumps of clay and then submit ourselves joyfully into the hands of the master potter. And he's the only one who can shape us and make us into something beautiful, into his very image. You see, the gospel, it frees us from comparison. I'm, I'm gonna just take a moment to make sure we're catching this. Do you understand that the truth of the gospel that shows us that each one of us are broken and hopeless aside from God's grace erases much of the reason why we would ever compare ourselves amongst one another in a sinful way. Because here's the thing, man. If I'm just a lump of clay that God mercifully grabbed and started to shape, and aside from his great, sovereign, merciful work upon me, I would be dead in my sins without any hope, a wretch. How do I ever have any business looking around comparing myself to anybody else? All I've done is receive the mercy of a good God. And that's all you've done as well. Or if you're somebody that has not yet understood your great need for Christ, you're somebody that is in here today and you would say, yeah, I hear what you're saying, but I, you know, I haven't been there yet. Maybe this is the first time you've heard the gospel. Friends, I've got no business comparing myself to you. I don't feel like I'm better than you because God, by his grace, reached down and rescued me when I never could have rescued myself. All I want is to tell you that he'll rescue you too. That he loves you too. We sang it earlier that God sent his own son so that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. I'm not better than you because I followed Jesus. I just received grace before you did. And if that has really happened in the hearts of God's people, then comparison is going to be the furthest thing from our mind. What's going to 
inhabit our thoughts, what's going to be our driving motivation is letting other people know that the same hope we've found is available for them as well. The gospel fixes comparison. You, start, you stop feeling like you, you've earned something, that you're righteous by your own works. You start to realize that you're just a beggar that found some bread. And it really, really starts to train your heart and mind to want to show others where they can get some bread too. The gospel shatters the lie of comparison. And it gives us the right standard to compare to. Remember I told you earlier, God has given us the ability to judge ourselves against a standard. I don't think the fact that we have this tendency wired in us for comparison is totally sinful and only the result of brokenness. I think we're supposed to do that. The word of God is very clear. This, the Bible calls itself a mirror, that we're supposed to stare intently into this thing and see what is prescribed here. What does, what does the Bible say God expects of those who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good? What does the Bible lay out as God expecting of those who have been made his children by his grace and mercy alone? What does God see? What is the vision in his heart of how his children will conduct themselves once they have been brought from darkness and into light, rescued from death and brought to life. This mirror allows us to judge ourselves and we should compare ourselves with it, but we do not come away broken, disheartened. We don't come away feeling like, oh, I can never measure up because we, we wholeheartedly embrace this truth. I never can measure up. That's why it's by grace. That's why Christ had to come. I can own my insufficiency. And then what am I comparing to? Not you. But Christ alone, and I'm never going to measure up to him. And I say hallelujah because he's promised me that in every place I come up short, if I'll repent and I'll ask for his help, that he'll grace me, that he'll pour his power out upon me, that he'll help me day by day to become more and more like him, that he'll keep working me on that potter's wheel, shaping me into something that reflects his perfect, beautiful image. I got no need to compare with you. There's one standard I'm comparing to, it's Christ. And yes, I come up short. Do you? We do. If you grab this, you could be free. There's a reason why all the psychology magazines are writing about this comparison thing. They don't, they don't catch on to, the Bible's been saying it forever. They don't catch on to stuff unless it's a trend. Understand something, this is an epidemic among us. Too many of you are spending too much time on the gram and on Facebook Feeling like you're not a good enough mom or wife or husband or career person. I'm not far enough along in my journey. I'm not making enough money. I'm not doing this. I'm not traveling enough. My house ain't crafty enough or clean enough. This comparison is eating us from the inside. It's killing us. And Jesus wants you to be free of it today because it is absolutely neutralizing our effectiveness for the kingdom. We're spending so much time up in our heads worried about how we're stacking up to this thing or the other thing. We don't have time to be looking outward, look for other broken people and lead them to the hope that is found in Christ. I hope you want to be free today. God came and spoke a word to the people of Haggai's day. They, if they listened to what their God said, they got to work. They took courage. They started stacking stones with joy because they realized, yeah, you know what? This temple, it's going to be haggard, okay? This thing's going to be rough. It's going to look like some kids built a playhouse. okay. But God said, the glory of this latter temple will be greater than the former. He's going to do something here that's going to make our efforts, our lack of sufficiency, a non-issue. <laughs> what broken stuff are you looking at in your life? What stuff have you tried to cobble together and you're just sitting there 
crying about how it doesn't look like you wish it looked. Or feeling like God is unhappy with it. I know you got broken family stuff. I know there's difficult marriage situations. I know you're looking at your life in a lot of ways right now and saying, this is not the way I thought it was going to look. Well, friends, join the club. No one's ever going to escape that reality. No one's ever going to escape the reality that we all project these expectations and we all, we, we, we let these standards come in and rush on us and put pressure on us that we were never meant to bear. There is one standard you need to concern yourself with, and that is the standard of Christ and his holy, perfect life and the love that he walked in. And if you will set that as your standard and let all the rest fall in behind, you can walk and live free today. You can breathe air without that weight pressing on your chest all the time. You can enjoy sweet sleep at night without your mind racing about how you don't stack up to this or that or that. Hallelujah. Hope you'll let him loose those shackles off you today. I'm excited to think about what would happen if a few of us would do that. God's message to his people in Haggai's day was to take your eyes off of yourself, take your eyes off of one another, and set your gaze upon me. That was the message. That's how you fix this sinful tendency towards comparison. Quit looking at you, quit looking at everybody else, and look at him. Because everything you're discouraged about, he can bring an answer to it. Or he'll show you that that wasn't really something he wanted you to be concerned about anyways. Either way, you end up free. And friends, this message from Haggai to the people of his day, it echoes forward to us today. This message is reaffirmed by all that Jesus and his apostles taught. If we will do this, we can live as free men and women, no longer tortured by our tendency to measure ourselves against worldly standards, standards that don't even apply to the children of God. All that in mind, may we take courage and do the work of the kingdom without fear, because he is our God and we are his people. And that means that we are free from the futility and foolishness of worldly comparison. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, our hearts are full of gratitude yet again for your word. Thank you. Thank you for calling Haggai to prophesy. Thank you, God, for these words that you spoke thousands of years ago, but how they're so relevant and how they pierce our hearts today. Lord, please, I ask you to, by the power of your spirit, just work upon the heart of every single person within the sound of my voice or that may hear this later. I ask you to work upon them, God. Bring them to a place of understanding. Open their eyes if their eyes are closed to this reality that all of us are driven in very painful, destructive, unhealthy ways by comparison that all of us are tempted to stack ourselves up against standards that don't apply as the people of God. Lord, if there are those that hear this and they don't belong to you and they're, they're just barraged daily, they, they, do ha they, don't, they can't look to Christ as the standard because they have not yet come to faith and, and they just have to try to stack up to what the world's throwing at them every day. God, I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would draw them to yourself, that they would be able to come and acknowledge their great need for you, that they would bow their knee and surrender, that they would declare that they know they are sinners in need of a savior 
that they would receive the grace and mercy that frees us from the scrambling of trying to, to keep up with everything the world's throwing at us. God, I thank you. Thank you for how many times you've told us that you're with us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, that even when we've acted like that wasn't good enough, you didn't change your message. I thank you, God, that you didn't, you didn't decide to sprinkle some sugar on it or come at it another way because half the time we're stiff-necked, rebellious people and we ignore you when over and over again the great comfort you bring to us is I am with you. I thank you, Lord, that you've said that from the beginning and you're saying it today and you won't stop saying it until it clicks, until we really can rejoice in how deep and beautiful and sufficient that truth is that you are with us. God, may we cry out with deeply convinced and convicted hearts that your grace is sufficient for us. Lord, your presence is our greatest prize and treasure to have relationship with you, to be known by you, for you to allow us to know you. Lord, these are great privileges not to be taken lightly. Lord, we do often take them for granted. We set them aside and we often get caught up in this rat race. We often get caught up in the lies of comparison, chasing after these other things, trying to find affirmation in places we were never intended to. Lord, many of us feel like we're starving for some kind of positive affirmation from somewhere, somebody telling us we're doing a good job, somebody telling us that we're good enough. But I thank you, Lord, that you've declared in no uncertain terms that we are worth something, that we are valuable enough because you let yourself be murdered and hung upon a cross and you let your blood flow to purchase us. You've set our value for eternity. God, please forgive us for the times when we Decide we know better than you. Thank you, Lord, that you don't judge us harshly when we struggle with our own assessments of ourselves and we come to conclusions that are not in line with your word. Thank you that you're merciful and long-suffering and patient. Thank you, God, that you're willing to walk with us as we work these things out. Thank you that you're committed to the process of making us more like you. Thank you that you won't abandon us in the middle, but you've promised to stick with us. We need you, Lord. We need you. We declare that today. We know it. We thank you that you're faithful to answer. We love you and we worship you alone. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give, or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.